everybody. Welcome to the Dunces Corner. We are recording this on Lundi Gras, though who knows when it'll be released, maybe in the midst of Lent. And I'm Dr. Brian Pedraza, and once again, I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Dr. John Minert. Dr. Minert, Lent is coming. Yes, that's true. It's kind of weird because I feel like we've been living in an eternal Lent. And now Lent is coming. Like, I don't know how to deal with this. Yeah, I don't either. I saw, a, I saw a meme online. There was some guy running and it said, me in 2021, Lent 2021. And Lent 2020 was like, or maybe it was the reverse. There was a meme. It was cool. <laughs> there was a meme. <laughs> yeah, it's like we've been getting punched in the face over and over again. And it's like, okay, now it's your turn to take a bat to yourself. It's kind of like, ugh. And I'm prepping also, my bat with. Uh, you what? With, prepping your bat. I'm prepping my bat with. Um, what are those old bats they used to have in the like N64 WWE ones? They wrapped them in barbed wire. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting out one of those. <laughs> nice. You never played those on N64? No. I didn't two? have an N64. I, I went from Nintendo to Super Nintendo. And then I uh, phased out of gaming until I went into PC, PC oh. gaming. Yeah, you missed out, dude. Yeah, I know. I hear the N sixty four Mario Kart is where it's at. I think it's inferior to the SNES version, but that's just me. Oh, okay, no, I'm partial to the first. You're making me feel good, then. Thanks. Yeah, I'll bring that's... it over sometime. I still have my Super Nintendo. Yeah. And now we're we're also joined by someone making sour faces to Dr. Minard's remarks. Uh, but Brady, we haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be back. Hey, Brady, how are you? I'm good. I'm a little sour with Dr. Minard's comments. I think that the N64 is definitely superior, but it's cool. You know, maybe <laughs> I'm just a product of my generation. That's cool. Yeah, you're a gaming noob, man. A gaming noob. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've been playing Mario Kart since 1991. Mm. Well, I've only been born since 1996. So Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and Brady, I think the last time we had you on, you were engaged. That's correct. And now you have entered a new state of life. That is right. I am married to my beautiful wife, Ansley. Yay. We are super happy and everything. Yeah. Congrats, man. How's the newlywed life? Newlywed life is beautiful, and it is also an opportunity to grow. <laughs> um, <laughs> what you trying to say? <laughs> do you, you want to run this by Ansley before you say anything else? You might want to. I, I, I think she would. She would agree with that comment. I, I, it's a beautiful time. It's a wonderful opportunity, and I think growth is the beautiful part behind it. Like it's an opportunity to grow in Christ together. So, yep. Clean that up real fast. Okay, yeah, that's nice. good. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Give us one one thing, Brady, that is better than you thought it would be. Now that you're in married life, the lunch Man, better than I thought. Yeah, the lunch meat at lunch because you can't. Eat eat out every lunch. You know you're responsible for a budget. That that's <laughs> that makes so it sweet. better. <laughs> that makes it better. Uh, 
No, I would probably say the opportunity to not pray over the phone every night or over FaceTime, but being oh, yeah. able to pray like in our own home, in our own space. And yeah, that part's really nice and really beautiful. Nice. Yeah. You get to say goodnight and then roll over. Correct. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Part. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Cool. Well, good to have you with us again. And then we also have Catherine. Catherine, how's it going these days? Hello. It's good. I don't know. I'm just kind of rolling. I'm like, I can see the graduation finish line coming up and I'm just like trekking my way over there. (laughs) Yeah. This is the last semester, huh? Yeah, this is it. So I don't know. I think like I've been thinking a lot about recently and maybe it's just because I'm taking a psychology class about like adolescence, but I've been thinking a lot about like what it means to be an adult and like what it means to uh, move past college and like get a real job and do all those kind of things. So it's good. I'm, I'm excited, but I'm also like spaced out a bit. (laughs) Yeah. Transitions are weird, awkward times, right? Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a lot of adjusting and a lot of knowing that like I'm not I'm not graduated yet, but I can see the other side and so just like mentally preparing myself for like hey, things are going to be different, but they're not different yet. So I don't know, it's like uh it's just kind of that waiting period of like I know things are going to change, but I can't do much about that right now. I'm just kind of waiting patiently (laughs) yeah then you enter the job search world i think when i first got my degree my undergrad degree well then i I stayed very quickly for my master's but after that i probably applied to like 50 different places in one summer you know i had a massive file with uh cover letters and resumes sent out to catholic high schools and things like that and i think i got I, I got interviews with like three, <laughs> Don't like say three that. out that of fifty. Scares me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I've sent my resume out to uh, two people. Um, it's also just a. The good thing is, like, teachers will always be in demand. You'll always need teachers, which is good. I'm glad I chose that career, but also, like, I just. I don't know. It's like whoever's hiring, you just kind of have to like put your feelers out and hope that they want you. It's dealing with rejection in a whole different way. Like I thought being rejected by like, I don't know, like relationship wise was hard, but I don't know. I think getting rejected job wise might be harder. I don't know. Man, (laughs) big words. No, (laughs) they'll just send you a generic email. That'll be it. Like, Hey, we don't, we don't like you. You're bad. And you're like, okay, whatever. I don't know. Dr. Minard, I wear my heart on my sleeve. So, like, someone could tell me, like, I don't know, reject me in the tiniest way. And I'd just be like, seriously, you don't like me? And I'd just be crushed. So I'll start sending you generic rejection emails once a week for this <laughs> the semester. To get her ready. Prep. Yeah. Yeah, 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 this yeah. is prep in your last semester. Thank you for your application. But we've ha- we've had X number of well-qualified applicants and we're sorry to say you have not been selected for the position <laughs> love Don't meet your standards <laughs> hr 
You shouldn't worry about Dr. Minor rejecting you. He still thinks N64 is the obsolete <laughs> one. Where I could tell you from working in a parish, comfort level doesn't equate to better. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I just want someone to give me money. That's it. That's yeah. it. Well, you're gonna, it. you're you're going to do better than the 3 out of 50 odds because you are in a better place than I was when I was your age, uh, theologically, pastorally, and I can say that as your professor by far and away. And then secondly, you have professors like Dr. Miner and myself who are willing to go to bat for you uh, and connect you to people in the community, which I didn't really have <laughs> when I was graduating. I was just kind of like a scattershot. Let me send these 50 things out into the U.S. and see where they land, you know? Yeah. And he was still wearing cargo shorts. Oh, yeah, yeah. that yeah. probably that mm-hmm. probably tanked your chances. Mm-hmm. No, they were cool back then, so they uh, helped sure. the chances. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or you not, kept... <laughs> cargo shorts were in at some point, Kathy. Yeah. Did you keep all your resume in all your pockets that you had? Definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't keep much because we didn't really have phones back then. That's right. Just you know, keys in a wallet, basically. Twiddle your thumbs. Yeah. I kept my Nokia in my cargo pocket for a while. You remember those Nokias that had the really stiff um, antennas and you could play snake on them? <laughs> no. Now that we're so sidetracked, we also have another member of the crew <laughs> joining us. And it's Elise. Hey, Elise. Hey, guys. What's up? Hey, how have you been? I've been good. Um, yeah, talking about rejectance and letters um i've been applying for grad school so i know how it is it feels like another job really yay a theology major who is desiring more hurting in theology that <laughs> makes us proud that's awesome elise yeah you were saying about professors um going to bat for you and i feel like we just had such good education at franciscan and professors that are willing to help us look for the best um, future route. And even in speaking with the future schools that I'm looking into, the way that they navigate, like the future candidates for grad school, they, so many of the faculty members have said, like, we look for acceptance because we want the right fit here. And that's really encouraging. Mm. That's awesome. yeah, it's been a crazy ride, but also really encouraging too. So, well, it also helps when you don't get rejected. You're fine. right. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's been it's been good um, to hear some acceptance and to have some options. Um, and I'm really I'm looking forward to seeing where God is paving because He already knows, I guess, where I'll end up, and that's exciting for me because I don't. Could be. It seems like it's going to be somewhere really cold, though. A lot of the places I've applied to are cold places, which is interesting. That's true. A lot of theology grad schools are in much colder places than <laughs> than Southern Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, get ready for the snow. Yeah, today we're like ah, but a lot of the places I'm applying are like negative eighteen on the usual. So I'm like, okay. 
Yeah. When I first went to school in a cold place, I remember I was waiting in line to get into the cafeteria and my teeth were literally chatter- chattering, even though I had like big coats on and sweaters and stuff. Like I just couldn't stop it. But then you get acclimated after the first year and you're good to go. But you're coming from SoCal, dude, where the worst temperature you felt growing up was like 55. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm from the desert of Southern California. So we actually (laughs) got colder than that. (laughs) No, our desert swings, our coldest temperatures in the desert were probably in around 30. And then the hottest was could get maybe like 115. So, (laughs) yeah. Wow. We didn't mess around. But as they say in the West, it's a dry heat. It's different, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. So it's good to see you all. Let's get on with the show. So as you all know, When it comes to our university, vocation is one of the most important things that we want our students thinking about. I mean, we talk about it in the sort of welcome to college class that new students have to take. It's incorporated into our introduction to theology courses. Um, Everyone from the president, Dr. Holland, you know, down to the bottom knows, the bottom being me and Dr. Minor, knows that... um, we have to incorporate some sort of understanding of vocation in what we do. But I'm just curious, since when it comes to this topic, um, it, it's hard to nail down exactly what we mean by vocation. People often tend to mean different things. It's used differently throughout the university. And then also, you know, young adult Catholics in the local community are going to feel a lot of joys and pressures when it comes to the word vocation. So I figured before we dive into this topic theologically, let's uh let's open up what the lay of the land is like. You know, what what's it been like for you encountering this word if it was even emphasized at all in your life and if so how and how does someone typically in your shoes or your peers encounter the word vocation? I think the first time I heard the word vocation, the first time I remember hearing it was in high school. And it was always framed in the sort of way that's like, ah, go go be a priest, go be a religious sister, right? That's what a vocation is. And then any other, like, those were the only kinds of vocations that you pursue. So the word vocation just kind of like, in my head, was always connected to like discerning religious life. Um, but I don't know, in, in the university, sometimes it's used more in like a, uh, almost a career sense, but like career with a purpose. So it's, uh, it's not necessarily like, oh, like, are you, uh, trying to think it's like primarily a nursing school. So (laughs) the vocation might be like, oh, like I'm called to be a nurse, but it's not just oh, I'm called to be a nurse. It's more, I'm called to help and serve people through being a nurse. Um, so I don't know. I guess in the in the university, sometimes it's used more as a, a, a career with a purpose and with a distinct, um, yeah, distinct purpose behind it. 
that's my that's that's my two cents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I would say um the first time I had ever heard the word was my sophomore year in college. Um oh, I went wow. to Catholic youth groups since I was a junior in high school and all those different things. I never heard the word vocation. Um whenever we were, I think it was interpersonal communications. It was like my first class and Catherine's right. Most of the time, whenever you hear it within the university setting, aside from theology classes, you're hearing it more or less talking about what is the bigger picture behind what you feel like God's calling you to like, what, what is the, the act of service or the act in the mission of which you're trying to achieve through nursing or through psychology or through theology but um i don't know as you kind of go through the university and you kind of grow within i guess the theology program as a whole it kind of evolves it evolves into like this new you know this idea of uh, identity right and so that's kind of the 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 whole word that kind of sticks with me throughout the whole process is identity like what does god call you to within him where does he see where does he give you your identity through? I mean, besides him himself, where, where is he trying to push you to be within the body of Christ? Mm. You know? Yeah. So where was the place where you first encountered it, Brady? You said your sophomore year. Yeah, it was my sophomore year at Fran U. Um, It was in your communications class, you said. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was in personal communications. Uh, She said the word vocation and it was, it was completely new to me. I mean, I, even when I heard it, I was like, this isn't important. And then lo and behold, <laughs> super important. Of course, there's a differentiation between what she was talking about and what we ultimately, or at least Catherine was highlighting through her high school time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe you escaped so, a lot of young adult pressure because other people feel like the word vocation is like a massive weight that they carry on their shoulders. So, I mean, the second you say, that you're a religious Catholic guy, regardless of where you're going to school, what you're doing with your life or whatever, the old women in the parish are like, do you want to be a priest? <laughs> and it's like, it's like just because someone is into their faith and they are male does not mean that they inherently should be a priest. <laughs> but that is exactly what happens. You are right. Any young man who shows some piety is going to be approached by the sweet old ladies. There's actually something beautiful about that. But yeah, it, there's there's it, lots of comments we can make, right? It's like anybody who shows any sort of piety must not be called to marriage. <laughs> I know. I, the sacrament of marriage yeah. is not called for the holy. It's cool. We, we just <laughs> we just need holy priests. Just, just leave religion to okay. Yeah, leave religion to the professionals, guys. Leave religion <laughs> to the professionals. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I think, Dr. Pedraza, what you were saying about the weight, um, when I was discerning, and I mean, dis- discernment is its own animal, but whenever I was discerning religious life, and um, whenever I got out of St. Joseph's and was at LSU for a few years, there was a weight for sure. But there was also this huge mystery behind vocation. And I was like, I am living this and this is my personal vocation. But yet I just didn't feel like I could ever grasp it. Even though I was personally living, like discerning my own vocation, I was like, gosh, vocation is so mysterious. And 
I will never, ever be able to know it, God. Oh, your mm. will. Oh, Jesus. It was just so, it just, it was a weight. It was so much. And I just felt like, you know, I'll never know it until eternity. And um, okay, Jesus, I'm just going to keep living in this mystery and just hoping I'm grasping at it, which, you know, I, I do think there's some kind of somewhat truth to that um, because to know his will is, it's really, really difficult. But I think that at such a young age to have such a weight of vocation, we, there is something to that, that we make such an emphasis in our church, you know, to vocation, especially religious vocation and, you know, what's your vocation? So I was like, gosh, I got to pray about my vocation. I got to find my vocation. I got to discern my vocation. And I was just like, ah, I don't even know what this word means. So I think there is definitely something to that. Yeah. I, I fear that we have, uh, created a sort of cultural pressure cooker for young adults when it comes to the church and vocation, you know, like a- Adrian and I were chatting about a, a young adult friend recently. And Adrian was, said something to the effect of like, Oh, it's so hard being a young single woman who's Catholic. And uh, I think we just sort of laugh at laugh sort of painfully when we attend an event like, Theology on Tap or a young person's wedding. And then you see at the reception, right? They're uh, single people. They all, you know, if there's like a single woman, it's not uncommon to see like a gaggle of five to seven guys like surrounding her. And you sit at a Theology on Tap and just sort of see the awkwardness of people sitting next to each other trying to you know, strike up conversations and things like that. And I just, I worry about the the sort of pressure of like, now's the time. If you don't find your vocation, like you're going to miss it. And then the rest of your life is going to be just one of sad uh, unfulfillment, you know? Yeah, you can see it in the anxiety. I mean, anyone who's been to a Catholic undergraduate college knows that 50% of the people there if there's this kind of unhealthy emphasis on discerning your very particular vocation, um, feel massive amounts of anxiety toward it and about it. Because on the one hand, they're told you have to discern your vocation and know this or else your life's a complete failure and you suck. And on the other hand, in order to know this, there's no real clear way to figure it out. And so it's like, you have to know this thing, but it's not entirely clear how you figure it out. Good luck. You know, just like pray more. And if you don't know it, you must, you must not be praying enough or something. Just like go pray more. I don't know. There's a problem, I think, with the, um, just the way people are conceptualizing vocation. It does create a pressure cooker for young people where they have to do this thing, but there's no clear way to know how to do this thing. Yeah, there were levels, right? If you go to the cafeteria with someone of the opposite sex, then it's like, oh, they're totally going to be dating. If they go to mass together, it's like, no. oh, they're going to be seriously dating. If they go to adoration, forget about it. Like, Watch it's going to be Mary. a proposal, you know? Mary. That sort of thing. Right. Yep. You know, I feel like a lot of times we, whenever people talk about vocation, the, the biggest problem behind is a lot of times we ask people to teach vocation and they're still trying to figure it out. Like there's this pressure within 
I guess, the Catholic institution or like within different areas of Catholicism where we ask maybe catechists, we ask professors at universities that that is not their specialty, but we're asking them to talk about it because it's important, but like there's a lot of things that are important to talk about, but it doesn't mean that we should ask everybody to talk about it. It means (laughs) that we should ask the people that are, I guess, that's kind of like why we have vocation directors, people to articulate what a vocation is and things like that. We kind of forget the foundation whenever we go straight to the vocation itself. We forget the foundational fact that we're all called to holiness and we're called to a relationship. Mm. And so whenever we're trying to rush straight to the point, I feel like we forget the fact that there's a person behind what we're trying to do, what we're trying to achieve. And a lot of times it's not your spouse and it's not, it's not like your church parish. It is Jesus Christ. Right. So. Yeah. I, I, that's, that's a good point, Brady. That opens up a lot of things for us here and maybe it'll help us segue into giving some specificity to what the church actually means by vocation, because this is a pretty good lay of the land, I'd say for a lot of people and how they might encounter the word vocation, but already, I mean, notice the different ways we've talked about it, right? So, in the university setting, a vocation could be a job. Um, it could be a job with some sort of service as at the ultimate heart of it. It can be uh, a state in life. It can be a religious vocation or a vocation to the priesthood. So, I mean, like Father Josh, who's the diocese vocation director, I mean, he's not going to get a bunch of students knocking on his door saying that they want to be nurses. Can he help them, you know, figure this out, right? He's he's mainly after young men interested in the priesthood, and he'll probably help young ladies who are interested in the religious life, that sort of a thing. But that tends to be a vocation director's job, right? Not these other things, these other uses. And I'll just throw in one more um, ambiguity into the mix that relates to something you said, Brady. So, our university hosts a the- theology institute for high school students, which some of you have been involved with, and it's called the Franciscan Experience. And we were awarded a grant to start this theology institute, and the main purpose of it is to help high school students discern their vocation into whatever it is, how they're going to serve the church and the world. And it's great to be a Franciscan institution because you have someone like St. Francis who really embodies hearing the voice of Christ speaking to him from the cross to go renew the church. So, we really take that as our inspiration. But whenever myself and the director of TFE, Mr. Tyler Trahan, when we go to the annual conference in which all of the institutions who've been awarded grants, and there's close to a hundred of us, when we all get together and we start talking about vocation, it is so muddy and ambiguous. Um, And part of it is just wading through the ecumenical stuff. I mean, maybe a quarter of us are Catholic institutions and half are mainline Protestant and another quarter might be evangelical or something like that. But another part of it is just some of the stuff that we've already brought up. People use the word in so many different ways. At the last one we were at, I remember a small group I was in, and someone brought up a Methodist definition of vocation, which was something like, where your deep gladness 
and the world's deep hunger meet. And this is a fairly common way of talking about vocation. So like your gifts and talents and desires, where do they meet up with the community's needs? And where they meet, that is your vocation. And maybe there's something actually, you know, quite positive in in sort of reflecting on those things. But the one thing that was missing to me was no mention of the one who does the calling. And that's precisely what you, Brady, were bringing up about how every vocation really comes from the heart of Christ and is spoken from his lips. And so, sort of losing even the Christocentricity of vocation seemed to be sacrificing way too much. Like, whenever we're talking about vocation, which literally means a calling, someone has to do the calling. So, I mean, that's in, in broad strokes, that seems to be, if, if we're going to come up with a definition of vocation, God better be a part of it somewhere. Yeah, even, even in the most like secular sense of the word vocation, um, if we're talking about it within the Catholic sphere or we're talking about it as a Catholic, we have to remember that the Lord calls us to the things that we do, and it's up to us whether we want to participate in that or not. So even in vocation, even in like, what am I called to do as a job? It's important to reflect, what does the Lord want you to do as a job? What is the Lord speaking into your heart, right? Yeah, that's good. So let me let me push on that and anybody can uh, respond. So should we be using the word vocation so broadly that a job can fit in it? Should it be reserved for the sort of vowed or promised states of life i mean is there a sort of like there might be in the same way that like you lead someone into understanding the faith when you're evangelizing them by steps um that might be the way that like a vocation definition evolves like at its heart the vocation is what christ is calling you to do but that language might not like strike the hearts of everyone immediately so the goal is to get everyone there but you might have to help them recognize first right so for um students at the university who aren't particularly catholic they might still be able to recognize like oh i have a purpose in life and so you can talk about vocation like that but maybe it's like uh you have to kind of give them little stepping stones to start thinking of it more. But then at the heart, at the heart, in, it, in its truest sense, the vocation is the call of Christ. So I don't know. I think there are like, I think if we're, if we're talking about the truest definition, it's definitely the one that involves God. Um, but I, I don't know. Maybe that's just me being a little loosey-goosey with my definitions, though. That that oh, could nice. be very. You're you're yeah. going you're going to bat for the vague version of vocation. I like that, Catherine. You're throwing some I'm making punches. a stance. It, okay. Uh, uh, now analogy is not vague. I will fight. Oh, okay. Yeah. So now Dr. Minert's throwing his hat in the ring and saying it's an analogous use of vocation. Yeah, I think it's yeah. fair. If you have any kind of sense of transcendent calling, whether it's from a community or even within more kind of even more subjective terms that it's some kind of emotional feeling towards something. It's something that draws you out of yourself towards something else that can be, that can be a real 
preparation to hear vocation in its truest sense as a kind of calling from God to take part and participate in his church in some way. Right. But you can see analogous ways in which God calls us to a particular sacrifice or a particular job or things like that. I wouldn't say it's pure equivocation um, or that it's totally unclear what we mean when we say it, even in those less central instances. And and I think even in those less central instances, you can still set like you can still make the jump to say that it is a growth within your state of life. Like it is a step into the like like Catherine was saying, it's a step. So you're growing into that state of life. Like what are those active ways that you are growing into the state of life that the Lord wants you to be in? So when you leave it, I guess, vague or you leave it to more of an analogous way of doing it. You're, you're opening it up for people to see that there's a, a step or there's growth within your vocation. It's not just this, yes, I'm doing it. No, I'm not kind of mindset, which I feel like our world kind of perpetuates. The only problem that you'd have to like really guard against is giving too vague of a definition for someone who is ready for more. And I mean that you're going to face that with anything. Like you just have to have a really good sense of like, okay, where is this person at? And how do I, how do I meet them there? But there is, there is a real uh, danger in someone who's like ready to hear like, no, the vocation is like, what is God calling you to do? Um, And not just to do, but where you're supposed to be, like how you're supposed to love him. Like, you know, if you're not telling the person who's ready to hear that, those specific things, then they could, you know, it could, vocation could totally be, not totally be ruined, but they could get this skewed idea of it. So, well. I, I guess being in married life, like, like Dr. Pajas said, like jumping into the married life and like learning it, like I said yes to this vocation and I love it dearly, but I'm growing. Like I said, like the beauty behind a vocation is like, yes, you accept it. And yes, you're 100% that vocation, but you are consistently growing. Like someone doesn't just join the priesthood and is automatically like the best priest. Like there's graces that come, but eventually you have to grow. And so that lowercase B vocation, you know, you different differentiate it between the uppercase B and lowercase B, that lowercase B vocation ultimately those that makes a huge difference on how I, I go about being a married man. Like if my job is keeping me away from my family, if the things I'm doing in my life that I say are calling me or that God's calling me to, if it's keeping me away from my wife, which ultimately is my number one vocation, then I'm not living out my vocation that God has called me to. Yeah, so okay. just a thought. So- Okay, so you you brought up the idea of a lowercase v and an uppercase v vocation. I still want to push because I, I don't think we've hit enough specificity yet. So even if we're going to say that there are analogous uses of the word vocation, analogy requires uh, the touch point of similarity somewhere between all of these uses. So what is that touch point? Is it just the use of the word calling? It, that doesn't seem to be enough, right? Because if I call any of you on the phone, we wouldn't say like, ah, vocation, there it is, right? So it has to be a calling to or from something. 
So how, how do we specify what vocation is? Like called to what? what? What's the similarity between all of the uses? Well, I think God is the caller. So the root of the word vocation is vocare. So it's to call. So you have to have someone doing the calling, as you said, Dr. Pajasa. So if God is calling, even in the occupational vocation, I think it's good we're distinguishing. So even in the occupational vocation, God is calling in those ways, like y'all have been saying, to do this for his glory. So if we're giving it for his glory, and if that's helping the greater vocation, as Brady said, to serve your wife, to serve the community in a greater way, then that's fulfilling those things. I guess it's also a like, what do you call to do in any capacity, whether it's occupational or, um, you know, capital V vocational, it's, it's serving in some kind of way. It, it's giving of yourself to something else. So whether that be, you know, as a priest giving to the church, um, as a, as a wife giving to the husband, as a, uh, uh, as a, a worker giving to the people they're serving because even in even in any like line of work like if i'm going to be a teacher i'm giving to my students if i'm a nurse i'm going to be giving to my patients like in some capacity every single job you're serving something um so i guess that might also be a link but if it's not then that was not my answer there you go <laughs> no I, you're on to something Catherine. i mean I'll, maybe we'll be helped by uh our ecumenical council much aligned, uh, maligned, I should say, these days, but uh, uh, still super important for the direction of the church, aka Vatican II and their constitution, Lumen Gentium. Uh, the council says that the universal call is to holiness, right? And it even specifies, at least in my own reading, I don't know, Dr. what if you would agree, but Holiness seems to be defined in that document as the perfection of charity. So it's love of God and love of neighbor, which ultimately defines what you're called to. So that's another touch point of similarity for all of these uses. Yeah, God is the one who's doing the calling, but what is the thing that you're called to do? Whatever it is, it better be an exercise of loving God or neighbor. Right. So that makes it easy if the, if the, um, prime instance, so to speak, is a following of love, then you, in some ways you can speak about it with only God implicitly calling or something. It's like a, the community's calling you or even your sense of service are calling you. In some ways, you're following love, right? And so there's this general sense of um, general sense of vocation that I think can be reduced to love of God and neighbor. I agree. Yeah. So, so where did the... Um... What Brady called the capital V vocations fit into this, the which I take by that you meant like the states in life, Brady, like we're being married or um, priesthood, religious life, that sort of a thing. Correct. So the capital V vocation would would talk about the states of life, um, which you just stated, and then the lowercase v would more or less be applied to everything. I guess after that, the way we use it when we talk about a job or we talk about those things that God's, God's calling us to. Um, one thought that I had is also the, the order 
the ordering of of the vocations because I feel like, um, or at least I, I I know this to be true. The Lord calls us in our lowercase v vocation, but which again is could be working at Walmart, could be being a theologian, could be being a garbage pickup guy. Like it could be literally anything, and it it's about serving God and the charity behind that and growing in charity, but. Ultimately, the grace that you receive through that is ordered towards your capital V vocation and ordered towards how you can love God most through that. Right. So, what, what would you say is the relationship, if any, between your um, marriage and that universal call? I would say that the, the correlation between the two is I learn, first and foremost, how to love a beloved by my relationship with God. Um, the grace I receive from that is where it starts, where I can grow to love Ansley more. I feel like a lot of times, and I, working at a parish especially, you see this all too all too much. Um, we have a problem with how we order our relationships in our lives. A lot of times we have parents or just overall Catholic families where maybe the children come first, spouse comes second, and God comes third. Or it'll be spouse, children, God, or maybe God, children, spouse. Like we, we, our ordering of our vocation gets really interesting because we, we forget that we do it all for Him. Like I think that's kind of the whole central point behind it is we can only respond to a call if we're being called by a person. And that person is really specific and really integral to the whole thing. It's Jesus Christ. Yeah. No, that's that's good. Wise wise words from a newlywed there. <laughs> well done. When at first when you said ordering a vocation, uh, I was like, oh, Brady's gonna get into the uh religious life being superior to the married life. <laughs> I was like, oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not gonna go down that road. I I just I see it so much. Like we see people all the time, and I mean we even fall victim to it. We end up prioritizing maybe our lowercase fee over our uppercase fee vocation, or we end up prioritizing our kids over our spouse or our spouse over God. And so we may start making decisions based on them as opposed to space based on like where God actually calls us to be in life. Right. I, I see what you mean. So like, in other words, prioritizing a job over your family or things like that. Yeah. So if, if universal call to holiness is sort of the baseline, um, then they couldn't be in opposition, or at least they're not supposed to be right They're Correct. Yeah. It, it, if you were, if you were to start with them in opposition, you're starting on the negative foot, which is not the way it's supposed to go. First yeah. and foremost, the three commandments are to basically it's God's number one, God's the only God you have. Um, keep the Sabbath holy and don't use the Lord's name in vain, but primarily they're speaking about a relationship. You know, don't cheat on me, don't talk about me, and give me time. And then after that, the commandments have specifically to do with how we participate in a relationship with other people. So even in our first com- the commandments that the Lord gives us, He's He's asking us first and foremost about Him, and then secondarily that bleeds into how we interact with everybody else in our vocation. Yeah, that's, that's my good. rule with Katie. I just never talk about her. 
<laughs> Thanks for a good relationship. <clears throat> you know, keep my name out of your mouth. so i I know you wanted to avoid this like a ninja brady but i i think we should bring it up because it opens up important questions so um in some sense in history the word vocation has tended to be used or at least to be thought of mainly for catholics in terms of the priesthood or the religious life and there is a, I guess what you might argue is an objective superiority of the life of the councils, so to speak, which is argued for, for <laughs> Dr. Miner's making a nice face, um, of poverty, chastity, and, o- and obedience. And so when you kind of bring those ideas together, there are some people who would say marriage is not a vocation. I mean, that's, that's just what people are are called to do naturally, right? This is sort of the, the the natural state, and it isn't a vocation being called out of something that's uh, well, not out of it, but beyond something that was the natural state, so to speak. So maybe marriage wouldn't be a vocation then. And what do, what do we make of the the supposed superiority of the councils when it comes to other states in life? So what what, what do we make of this? Yeah, Brady, did you do you think you took the easy road? You <laughs> you're like, I can't handle the priesthood. I I guess I'm gonna go get married. <laughs> you know, this is not me negating anything about priests. Like they sacrifice so much. They I mean, where would we be without our priests in our parish? I, I work in a parish with two and they are literally busy all the time. But in some ways that's their charism is availability, a diocesan priest. Whenever we talk about vocation, especially the vocation of marriage, I would not say that it's in, like inferior to the priesthood at all. In fact, without the vocation of marriage, there wouldn't be any any souls to really be helping, right? Like we we wouldn't be if we're all living a chaste life, there's no there's no actual souls within the parish to be baptizing there's no people that need sacraments aside from those who are already living i guess but we'd live in a weird world if everybody was just called to the priesthood or chaste life but aside from that in the practical nature behind it our world is crying out for holy marriages our world is crying out for people to raise children within the church it's a rarity even with pe- within people who know this, it's a rarity. It, I, I feel like whenever we talk about negating a important an importance of one vocation to the other, I feel like we start to, in some sense, play God's role because we're trying to say that one person's call and universal call to holiness within him is less important than the other. We start to say that you can't grow in ch- in chastity or you can't grow in poverty and you can't grow in charity within the sacrament of marriage which to be honest with you is not true at all you practice those all of those graces within the sacrament of marriage all the time it doesn't mean that i'm called to be a celibate it just means that i may be called i mean i i I remember being protestant i went to this camp and this guy was giving a talk on you know being chased and not having sex before marriage and all this stuff. And he held up his ring and he said, see this, this is a license to love. 
and it made me want to cringe because it was like he was saying, like, once you get married, anything goes. And I, I feel like that's the absence of that of those virtues that the grace that God's given you. Whenever we say, whenever we talk about you can't perfect those virtues within marriage, we we negate the idea that there are saints who are holy married couples. In fact, Saint Therese has some some parents. Yeah, no, no, that's that's good, Brady. So you're saying, hey, if marriage is one of the ways, one of the important ways in which the universal call to holiness can be specified, then holiness is still a part of marriage, right? Those virtues are really important. It's not like holiness is for the other states in life, but not this Correct. one, even though it's Correct. quote unquote natural. But there's, I think nope. there's still, there's still some issues we got to open up, right? So um, I would totally agree that marriage is a vocation. At least it sure seems like Vatican II is putting it on the map since it's, it gives its its own paragraph in the in the chapter on the universal call to holiness. So it seems to be specifying in some sense marriage as an important way of embodying that call to holiness. But let's say does the so-called superiority of the councils does it mean that the other ways of life are easier like Catherine, you know, joked about does that is that what the, you know, superiority of councils is about is it does it mean it's harder? Um, and does elevating one by saying it's somehow superior mean that the others are negated? Pass. <laughs> um, okay, so I was looking at Lumen Gentium, and under the universal call of holiness is actually the evangelical councils, which was really interesting to me because. I remember this conversation in Christian spirituality and it got really heated. I mean, there was punches and um, actually it was a really cordial conversation over tea. Um, but the deacon candidates were really surprised to even hear that it could be proposed that there was one that was a greater perfection, you know? And I think it is really interesting that that can be a proposition. Um, but looking at Lumen Gentium, I think we're all called to live the evangelical councils in their own way. So, I mean, being in religious life, clearly you see poverty, chastity, and obedience in a structural form. And so I think God can give you the grace through the form of your superior, through the form of obviously living away from the secular world and having the, the structures and the form in it, it would seem to come easier in a way almost, although it's still very hard. Um, but it depends on the way that you live that because it doesn't mean just because I'm a religious sister and I'm in these like somewhat formed structures that I'm going to live a virtuous life, even though I'm in this community. Now, translating that to marriage I still think that you are called to live poverty, chastity, and obedience, just as you're called to live the universal call to holiness, but it looks different. So you're called to live obedience to your husband. You're called to live in a chaste way as far as like monogamy. And um, if you're single, you're called to live chastely. And um, so in those ways, I think it depends on the way that we live 
our life just as we're supposed to live in charity. Yeah, that's good, Elise. Okay, this is insightful. And it brings up a lot more things in my head as you were talking. So, I mean, we we do want to say the evangelical councils bring some sort of perfection. I mean, that's been the claim um, since people have been taking them, you know, as as vows, because they, it's the way that our Lord lived. And it's, so, I mean, the more that you enter into that way of life, the, uh, I guess the, the more you might say that there's a chance that it's more efficacious. Um, the more that you live in that way as it's expressed in, you know, religious communities and things like that, not just, not just the way that everybody is called to live poverty. It seems at least there's a chance for it to be efficacious, but the, the more efficacious. And it brings up the question for me, because Catherine's joke about, um, is married life easier actually raises the issue for me. So do the councils necessarily mean easy? Because just in reality, I would say, and I'm not singling out anybody, but when it comes to certain ways of living the religious life, I would gather that I probably have less money than a lot of the religious that I've encountered before, or I have, uh, the sort of obedience that I have to give to my wife, it might be more pressing or harder than, say, the sort of obedience that religious would have to practice. So I'll, I'll leave the chastity one untouched. You know, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we're all living that <laughs> uh, to the extent that we should in in our state of life. But yeah, it just doesn't. I don't know how to use the word easy when it comes to the councils. I guess one of the things is like ultimately our call to holiness lies within like our ability, like our ability and want and call to be a saint. Right. I mean, I'm not trying to simplify it in any way, but in some sense, we're called to be a saint and called to be in that relationship. That's all the more intimate in heaven that we can't have here. I think it's, what is it? Is it Jose Maria Escriva? Was he the one that coined I mean, he was the one that basically championed the call to holiness for married life. Is that right? In some sense. I mean, for the the ordinary way of life for people yes. who are in the world, right? So that would include yeah. married people. Yeah. So one of the things I think he, he stated was that marriage receives this, this special grace, just like diocesan priests or religious do. Um, the special grace that doesn't stop them by any means to reach holiness, which ultimately is the goal. I mean, it is that the meet the relationship is the goal to hone that relationship, to perfect those graces, like you're saying. And maybe that I, I could see where you're saying that it's easy. Some, some could view it as easier to be in a community, but I'm going to tell you right now, being responsible for another person's holiness, i.e. your wife, is really hard. Um, no doubt. Whenever they're in desolation or something like that, or wherever you're in desolation, whenever you're struggling or they're struggling, it's really hard because you, you ultimately, like at the end of the day, you feel this responsibility that maybe you wouldn't have felt, maybe you wouldn't have I guess understood 
prior to being married, it's like the Lord kind of like has a link to our heart, right? So like if she's hurting for the Lord or if I'm hurting for the Lord and like I feel this absence of the Lord in my life or she does, like you feel that angst and that hurt more than you probably would have prior to. And in some sense, I feel like that does hone your hone your ability to grow in holiness. Mm. Your ability to be responsible for other people in a more intimate way than you probably could have for a whole parish, um, especially being responsible right away. I'm not saying that priests don't necessarily have this either, but I mean, there has to be a reason why we have a unique grace that comes with marriage, right? I'm just pausing because it looks like Dr. Miner wanted to say something. I have lots of things to say, but I'm on, I'm in print with lots of commitments concerning all of this or will be very soon. Yeah. Oh, well then you do have lots to say. I do, but I don't, I don't know. Um, I think in general, probably the healthiest way to talk about the relationship between the vocations is what we find in Amoris Laetitia, that there are complementary ways of serving the body and both are uh, ways to achieve holy, the holiness of charity and that there are pitfalls to each. Um, I think that's probably the best way to talk about it. <laughs> All right. Well, come on. We got to push you to open that up a little bit more. So, <laughs> so if, if uh, everyone is called to practice the evangelical councils, and I will say my reading of Lumen Gentium seems to I would agree with what Elise said. It sure Definitely. does seem to lean that way. Then what distinguishes the way that religious live the evangelical councils? And what do you make of the claim of the supposed superiority of the religious way of living those councils? So what I would say in my reading of Lumen Gentium and subsequent papal magisterium on the religious and married life um, from JP2 Benedict and Pope Francis is that um, definitely all are called to the perfection of the evangelical councils. Um, what I would say specifies the religious life would be vowing those councils, not living them. And when it comes to harder, or easier, the way I tend to make sense of it is that I would distinguish between a negative and a positive council the evangelical councils being negative councils. Um, negative councils, meaning if and negative positive councils always being relative to a goal. So a negative council would be something like avoid this if you want to reach this goal in the most fitting and um, easy way. And a positive council would be do this thing if you want to actually if you want to do an action that is a higher participation in this goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the evangelical councils in themselves, I wouldn't say are a higher participation in holiness. Like you don't get holier simply because you're poor or because you're continent or because you're obedient. It, it's just because of the, those, at least traditionally, the way we thought about this was those are things, those vows are negative in the sense that they remove obstacles to loving God. So things to which humans are generally tempted, like pride, money, sex, right? Or pleasure. And so we remove those so that you can pursue that end more fittingly. Um, 
but because you're just because you're not you're pursuing an end with or without uh things that can be obstacles i wouldn't say means anything uh for oh how your your holiness simply by vowing the counsels or by living them because they're negative counsels that's different from a positive counsel i would say so each virtue i'd say has positive counsels which would just be ways you can live that virtue in a fuller way so a positive counsel for the virtue of charity would be to um, make acts of prayer more often during the day, right? So to think of God sometimes versus just like habitually referring all your love to him um, is a fuller way of loving God than just like doing other things and not thinking of God. And so those acts of love and prayer are actually positive counsels. And so people who do those things do achieve some kind of fuller participation in a way that the negative counsels don't. So that's the way, I, if you push me, that's what I'd say. Uh, but I think in general speaking about, and if you say that, it allows for a very limited superiority of vowing the evangelical counsels, namely that anyone who vows a counsel is more likely to practice it consistently. I think that is the only way in the religious life is superior. Mm. Um, but I think in general, it's just healthier without all the specifications, just to speak as Pope Francis does in Amoris Laetitia, that there's a real genuine complementary complementarity here. And the superiority thing um, is relative to different ends. And so if you have the end of like active attention and love toward God, vowing the evangelical councils and living a religious life might be superior, right? Because it affords more attention and less distraction from the world, et cetera. But if you have different ends in mind, then the married life would be superior in those ways, um, such as uh, symbolizing Christ's love for the church. We do that better, you know? So, it, it, I mean, it, ha it depends on what you have in mind. Um, Sorry, that was more than you probably wanted, but no, that's that's exactly what I wanted. But it, it does raise a couple things that I would glean no, from, definitely, what you, definitely. from what you just said. So, like regarding the last thing you just said, there's no marriage in heaven, right? So, I mean, wouldn't somebody argue that the religious way, the vowed way of living the councils is superior in that sense, and it's not just a, a different differing ends because the end is ultimately communion with god so they might argue for right. the superiority on those grounds that there's no marriage in heaven yeah well i mean are there are there dominicans in heaven <laughs> uh yeah i don't know that's a good yeah i'm not sure there's no eucharist in heaven well. true right true. i mean it's <laughs> i'm not sure I, i'd have I think, to i think, think there's only dominicans in heaven according to some yeah that's right that's right yeah, yeah. um <laughs> Yeah, it's tough mm -hmm. because what what re remains in heaven are the virtues, which can be attained through any mm -hmm. state of life. But also the the effects of our lives don't just poof disappear, right? If mm -hmm. although there is no marriage in heaven, right? There's still the effects of a marriage are in heaven, just like the effects of being a Dominican or a Carmelite or a or a priest are in heaven. Although in some sense, the priesthood is different than the religious life because there's a, 
a character imprinted by the sacrament that does remain. Right. But right. but the religious life is literally just the lay life. Right? In some sense, at least mm -hmm. historically. Right. Plus right. plus vows of the councils that were all called to live. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I would glean from what you said is if, if um, the vows remove obstacles, someone could argue that the vowed life in some sense is actually easier then. Yeah. Because a path, a path that has fewer obstacles is an easier path. Right. I think that's right. Um, yeah. If you're talking about vowing the evangelical councils, which are negative councils, mm -hmm. I think that's the church's traditional theology would be that the, the religious life is an easier way to get holy. And therefore you're more blamable if you don't make it because it removes obstacles. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. Which helps validate Brady's concern. Cause he's he, he, Brady, you're worried that the married life is being disparaged here, right? It's the married life is hard. <laughs> I'm, I, and yes. Yes, it is. But it also like I referenced earlier, like you're responsible in a different way for people. Like, I was having a conversation with Father Matthew Dunn, which is the priest at our one of the priests at our parish, and you know we were talking about this the sacrament, the sacraments of healing, and more specifically about the mercy that accompanies them. And you know, I, I said one time I heard from a priest that like you you really never want to reject someone's mercy because you don't want to go and <laughs> go in front of God and him say why did you reject my mercy. They're responsible in a whole different way, of course, mm -hmm. for people and their flock in a different way whenever they interact with people. Like, you do not want to reject people the image of Christ that the priest have when they participate in the sacraments. But, yeah, no, I think what Dr. Myron said is really good. I mean, that's about – I think that was kind of like the line I was thinking on. I, I do know that it's easier whenever you remove the boundaries. And that's what's the beautiful part about living in community with people. But I guess uh, if you're living out the, the vocation of marriage correctly, then shouldn't you be doing that anyway? Is I guess the question that arises. Yeah. And I use the word easier just because it's, I don't know, we're, we're speaking a little fast and loose there, yeah. but it's punchy. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's it's totally punchy. I mean, of course, you, there's the specification of the individual person, too, that has a huge role to play. I mean, somebody who is used to spending and owning and consuming things is probably going to find poverty extremely challenging, right? And they they might be they might find it challenging in a way that somebody else wouldn't. So, I mean, we're all going to have our own different uh habits and virtues and vices we bring to the table and experiences that's going to make you know easier or harder so to speak different let's switch gears now that we've covered some of the theological ground when it comes to vocation, let's get practical. So what advice would you have for someone when it comes to discerning their vocation? Somebody who's in the pressure cooker, so to speak, like what would you tell them? Breathe. 
mm. chill out. <laughs> I remember being in high school and like having existential crises about like, oh my gosh, I need to know right now. And that might not help the the like mid to late 20s person who's still discerning. Granted, I'm I'm in a very privileged position, I guess you could say, being 22 and engaged and kind of knowing the trajectory of my vocation to a certain I found extent. it. Ah ha ha, all you suckers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Take that. Um but I don't know. I it's like you just kind of have to pray and trust that like the Lord sees you and that he's not going to abandon you and that he's not like vocations aren't like some some code like you're trying to like unlock a safe and like you have to do it in a, the exact certain way or else like oh you're missing these signs or like oh if i don't punch the code in exactly right like my vocation is just gonna blow up in my face like it's not a it's not that sort of thing it's just kind of i don't know to a certain extent it does just kind of happen you discern it and and you pray about it but it it's like you can't can't get all worked up over it but of course that advice doesn't help for the someone who is very anxious about it and it's like oh just don't be anxious just chill out just stop it you know it doesn't help so i don't know <laughs> someone else take it <laughs> the, does it the soulmate theory and present in our culture make this even harder i mean oh yeah people are like there's there is one out there for me and it has its catholic version in the you know priesthood or religious life too right like if i miss the one calling i'm in trouble yeah i told i told trey before i got on i was like i can i can say that like soulmates don't exist right and he was like yeah as long as we're we're the only soulmates that exist i was like okay yeah that's what i'll say um, <laughs> But no, it's like, I, in high school, I definitely like worried about that a lot. I was like, oh God, like if I, if I mess this up, like I won't, I somehow like my whole life will be ruined if I was supposed to be with this guy and I ended up like rejecting him and oh my gosh, ah. but it's like, that's not how life works. And, you know, me and Trey are grateful that we're engaged and, and that we found each other that the Lord brought us together um though some of us were a little protestant at first but it's whatever um but it's like i don't know it just it happens that's it that's that's my two cents okay yeah the, the soulmate problem works the other way too because sometimes i've encountered a student who's like well i god told me that she's supposed to marry me. And I'm like, oh, what does she think? She hates me. I'm like, dude, God, it's not God's will for you. <laughs> you know, but they're they're so sure, you know, like they're so sure that they received this special revelation about it, that they just gonna cling to it. But it's like, oh, I'm pretty sure if the other person's not on board, that it's not gonna happen. That's it. <clears throat> I think there's a a kind of more general question here of how do we even know what God wills, mm -hmm. which isn't entirely clear most of the time, um, at least in particular, right? How would I know whether God wants me to go to the farmer's market this morning or play games with my kids? Or should I go to bed at 9 p.m. or 10 p.m.? Should I, should I pray this time or that time? Or you know what I mean? The kind of 
neuroticism that can come with thinking you can know what God wills in particular, not just in general, uh, can make for very unhealthy uh, relationship to God, I think. Um, mm. Thinking you need, there's somehow, if I, I like pray enough or something, God will give me this special, obviously you can know what God wills in particular if God says it to you, but he, that obviously doesn't happen most of the time. I think I feel like we push people into saying like you need a special revelation, right? And if you pray enough, you'll get it, right? Um, that's kind of crazy. I mean, we never do that with other things, and it's way healthier. Just, I mean, I have my own kind of theories about how to discern, but I, I think any theory that thinks you can know that you can somehow wring God's will out of Him in particular and get this special grace of revelation is probably wrong. And it's going to cause lots of anxiety. Yeah. So what would you recommend for someone who's in the pressure cooker? What would you tell them? I would tell them that you, you can't know unless God specifically reveals it to you, who you're supposed to marry, or if you're supposed to be in religious life, or what you're supposed to do in the morning, afternoon, or evening, or anything. What you know is that God wants you to grow in love of him and your neighbor. And so you should focus on that and stop worrying as much about, I don't know, whether you found this one particular person or that one religious order or something like that, as if you're going to like wrestle God to the ground and be like, you, you tell me right now what I'm supposed to do. I'll pray more. And then you'll tell me. I mean, the prayer is important, not because it, it's going to ring from God a a revelation of what he wants in particular, but because it strengthens your communion with him through which you will ultimately make the judgment about where you will love God and neighbor best. And so you can't make the judgment without that deep and abiding relationship with the Lord, but don't expect that relationship for him to just be like, Hey, I want you to be a Franciscan. And you're like, yes, I did it. I've got it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for bringing out the Napoleon Dynamite voice when you did it, too. Oh, you're right. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. Because, I, yeah, we're the, we could call it the Jacob style of discernment, wrestling God. That's what we're most people are used to, you know? Like, give me the answer. I will yeah. force you to do it. Mm -hmm. But it's not like, I mean... It's not like that's out of bounds, so to speak, but it's clearly an extraordinary thing. Unusual. Yeah. 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 I was thinking just like Dr. Minot was saying, because I was like, what kind of practical advice would I have wanted when I was in like intense periods of discernment, especially going into religious life? And I mean, I this is kind of catered, I guess, to young women just because as a woman, um, but I was speaking with a friend last week and we were talking about how decisions in life can be like paralyzing it seems sometimes and i think in discernment you have to make active decisions um but yet like like dr Meyer was saying like go in the farmer's market or like do i want a grilled cheese or do i want a turkey sandwich i don't know jesus help me but like um we were talking about Edith Stein and what she says in her book, Essays on Woman, and how 
you have an intrinsic value and like I, this can be translatable for men as well, but if no. you haven't, <laughs> you haven't, um, let's see. She says this in her chapter. Our souls are different. So no, it doesn't apply to us. Yeah, no, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> and Eve, you Those know. are my Thomistic alarms <laughs> going off. <laughs> <laughs> she says this in women's intrinsic value in national life. Um, but she says, you know, we have this hyper feminine nature where we feel like we have to get everything right. And that's something that I've struggled with before and these decisions that paralyze us. Um, and then I think in discerning our vocation, that's something that we just feel like God has to tell us, as Dr. Meyer said, like in this mystical revelation, he has to come down from the crucifix in our prayer and just speak to us like you are going to sister. Um but she says, coming from this, how can we kind of get over this hyper-feminine nature and heal from it? And she says, well, to begin, where do we have the concrete image of total humanity to see it? And she says, through the incarnation. If we reflect on the incarnation and the better and better we get to know the Savior, that's the more that we're conquered by his gentleness and the more that we can submit to his will and to see his will and that's the deeper way that his image penetrates into us and the more that it awakens our love so in reflecting on this i would say for women who are discerning young women or you know um adults this book uh edith stein women essays on women and then also mother Teresa's secret fire and um Therese, I believe in love, specifically the chapter on confidence, like confidence in Christ. Now, all of these women ended up becoming religious, but I think that it's so good for anyone any woman or any man, man, alarms going off in any state of life. Because when you're growing in when we're growing in our reflection and our prayer of the image of Christ and how much he loves us. And we've been talking about this in catechesis, seeing the living person of Christ that instills this confidence in us that we can make these choices um, without it paralyzing us and that we don't, it might not be right. Like, and that's the thing, like, you know, but we have to make these choices or we'll just sit in fear and we'll just sit um, in the stillness. So Oh, that's beautifully said, Elise. I mean, it reminds me too of another uh, cultural negative that we have is the whole FOMO phenomenon, right? So it's like, we're not very good at making commitments. And one of the things that I would say for someone who was thinking about vocation is, well, whatever it is that you're going to end up choosing down the road, you're going to have to be committed to it. So you should probably start practicing that, you know, and it could be something as simple as, um, a friend texts you if you want to hang out and, but they're asking like a week and a half from now. And, you know, the FOMO way of doing this is to be like, let me, let me get back to you. And then you sort of wait to see if anything better comes your way, you know? And when in reality, what you want to do is since that person cared enough about you to invite you to do something. And if you think that that friendship is a value, you should just say yes. 
Like, who cares if something quote unquote better comes around? Like, that person is worth spending time with. It's worth cultivating that friendship. So just say yes and keep your commitment to it. But I think that's something that we're really, we're really bad at these days, you know? But the little commitments matter. Mm-hmm. If you can't say yes in little ways, good luck saying yes in the big ways. I would, I mean, again, this is a, a little ambiguous, I guess, behind who I'm talking to. But a lot of times I find that when people are having this, I guess, this like existential crisis of what am I going to do with my life? Like, what is God calling me to? They kind of forget God. Um, a lot of the times they miss the point behind why they're even doing it in the first place. See, if we're, if our vocation has entirely to do with who's doing the calling, a lot of times we forget who's doing it. Or again, this is, it's out of the love for God. They'll chase something. They'll chase a vocation thinking that this is what they're called to, but they'll never ask God, is this what you want me to do? And so I, I guess one of the biggest things that I always hone on whenever people are saying, well, I'm, I'm discerning this first and foremost, I always say, I always say go to a spiritual director or go to the vocational director and I always give them resources for that. But because this is not my, I guess, area of expertise and specialty, but I also kind of come back to like, how is your spiritual life? Like how much is God important to this decision? Like, are you actually asking him as important as it is to know what he wants? And even if he's not answering what in your life, do you feel like, brings you to a closer sense of holiness and a closer sense of what is, I guess, in the lightest sense, I guess I can word this. What is, what is helping you perfect the grace of your life more? Is it discerning priesthood? And if you are in desolation, every time you start discerning priesthood and you are struggling and you've gone through it and it's just, in some sense, your spirituality and your your relationship with the Lord is kind of pointing you towards maybe you shouldn't be doing this. Are you open to something else? Or are you trying to basically manifest your own vocation? Yeah, this is good, Brady. I think this is helpful because it someone could read what we've said to this point uh, being against the soulmate theory and everything like that as like, okay, so how do you discern your vocation? You just live life. Is that what you're saying I should do? Like I should just do regular stuff, be good, whatever choice I make, everything is fine. It's like, so what's the difference between that? Like, why would I even need to be a Christian then? Like, why, why would I even need God? It sort of does raise this question for us. And so if I understand what you're saying, Brady, it's not that you are advocating for some sort of special revelation in prayer, but you're advocating for sort of the tried and true ways in which Christians have always sought the will of God. They've sought the will of God through um, consistency in their prayer life. They've sought the will of God through mentors, spiritual, uh, those who are spiritually wise to confirm it within you. They've sought the will of God by looking at the teachings of the church. I mean, that would be a good, <laughs> just like a good baseline. Like, mm, is what I'm doing in accord with scripture and tradition or is it not? You know, that would be, you know, a good thing to be thinking about. So, there are these other ways. And then, of course, you brought up the Ignatian consolation and desolation. I, that has, a, I think, a strong place in the tradition too. Or I know many Franciscans would say something similar to the extent, like, do you 
assuming that your prayer life is consistent. If it's not, this wouldn't hold. But if it is, what sort of peace do you feel when you consider, you know, imagine yourself doing that sort of a thing? Or is there a sort of restlessness? So there are these sort of tried and true ways um, that we can turn to that could help. Yeah, I guess kind of simplifying it mostly, I guess I'm trying to say like, let's not take for granted the relationship that's bestowing that vocation upon you, right? Yeah. Because like, I feel like that is the the biggest problem that I, I see among people who are discerning is like, stop assuming things and just be with the Lord and do those practices and the Lord will come to you and it's not like if you choose married life or you choose priesthood and you're going to choose necessarily this wrong thing. Like, I, I guess it's like this. We feel like if we choose one, we're going to have the the hesitancy of not choosing the other. And I feel like that's a dangerous place to be. Yeah. Yeah. Follow Jesus. Yeah. To summarize yeah. what you're saying. That's, that's really right. important. Yeah. That's the way that Father Andrew talks about vocation, right? Yeah. You, you follow and step right behind Jesus and go where he goes. And if you do that, you're going to step into your vocation. Yeah. It reminds me of the way Aquinas talks about when we judge things in love is called a connatural judgment. I mean, basically, if we cultivate that relationship with the Lord, that deep kind of union that is love, that breaks forth in joy and zeal for him, we become vulnerable to his heart and become be formed by it. And then that love in turn becomes the basis on which we will be guided and make judgments and look for the Lord's movements through this person's advice or uh, the spiritual director or this community need or anything like that. It becomes the basis for the way we'll discern through secondary causes, right? Um, is that that love or that vulnerability to the Lord's heart that then forms us becomes the basis for our discernment. So Brady's absolutely right. You have to start with first things first, so to speak, and not worry so much about wrestling from the Lord a particular revelation. Um, Maybe the last thing that I would say to someone in the pressure cooker is to remember that God is for you. Something that uh, really pressed upon me this past Sunday. Um, it's been, it was the first time in a long time our family has been able to go to Sunday mass because of my health issues and things like that. But thanks be to God, the past week has probably been the best week I've felt in a long time. And so we were like, let's go, we're going to go to mass. And one of the things that the priest said during the homily was for Lent, um, it, it might be worth considering along with all of the, you know, what you'll give up and what you'll do. He said, what sort of healing do you think you might need during the time of Lent, which is a really, you know, it was worth pondering. And I started thinking about that and I was like, man, we've been through a lot <laughs> through the past nine months or so. And I wonder what sort of healing I actually do need. You know, normally I sort of like, oh, that's a great question, whatever. And I'll just kind of like bypass it or whatever, but it just stayed with me like, hmm. And it just struck me like, maybe I I need to think more about how the Lord is for me. You know? And maybe that's been hard to see. Like in the past nine months, like where, what is the Lord doing um, 
for the good of my family and for the good of me. I mean, it's a, a long thing and maybe, you know, at some point in the future, we might be able to talk a bit more about things that have been happening to me health-wise. And Dr. Minor threw out the idea of him interviewing me about it one day, but um, it did strike me like, I, I think this is an important season for remembering that the Lord is for you, that he loves you, that you are his beloved, you know? And he is always working for your good. And I would want to say that to somebody in the pressure cooker, you know, someone who feels all of the weight, I would just want them to know, like, he's not up there, like, just, oh, you missed it. Oh, you fool. Like, yeah, I can't believe you did that. I, I'm going to send, you know, desolation upon you for the rest of your life now. It's just, that's not really, the Lord is so merciful. And he wants you to know that you're loved and he's on your side and he's working for your good. So maybe that would help somebody breathe, as Catherine said. I hope they would be able to breathe that in truly. I think that's right. All right. And it is our hope that this episode with our musings will help you, listeners, in your own ponderings and discernments when it comes to going on vocation and especially those of you who are stuck in the pressure cooker i hope this uh, releases a little bit of the pressure for you uh, but know of our prayers for you and you can catch us at dunspod at gmail.com you can find us on instagram and on facebook or on twitter at dunspod and we look forward to hearing from you for your own thoughts and questions when it comes to this topic and we will catch you next time thanks everyone peace peace